We're in a series this fall on Jesus and the kingdom of God, um, which is our way of making our, our way path through the book of Luke. And we have one more Sunday on what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. So our scripture this morning is uh, Luke 6, 27 through 42. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Take one who strikes you on the cheek, or to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. But as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is a merciful, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask you would uh, teach us this morning in your word. These are difficult um, words of Jesus for us to to obey. Not hard to understand, but difficult to obey. Help us this morning to know that um, you are the God that has loved us as enemies and has forgiven us. And so uh, give us a vision here of what it means to love in your kingdom and to be loved by you. We pray this, um, I pray this morning that whatever, whatever relationship of conflict, whatever enemy, whatever person in our life we might be struggling with, or having difficulty with, that uh, you would teach us to, to what it means to love them and how you love us in the process. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. <clears throat> So to love one's neighbor or countrymen, kinsmen, is natural to almost every kingdom. To love one's enemy is natural to none. Save one, the kingdom of God. This is the greatest moral difference 
between the kingdom of God and all other kingdoms. Love of neighbor is a command that almost every kingdom uh, would believes and pr promotes, especially when our neighbor is like us and looks like us, right? And kingdoms of this world, um, in many ways, can imitate and look very much like the kingdom of God, except on this one thing. <laughs> uh, no kingdom can follow this command. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is a command that is incapable of being obeyed by the natural man. And I think the history of human civilizations and the nations proves the point. Um, the front page of the newspaper every single day proves the point. This is a command to love our neighbors, uh, our love our enemies, enemies is not natural. And even as Christians, it's not natural. And I think our instinct when we come to Jesus' commands, here in particular, and also in the Sermon on the Mount, is to sort of isolate the love command of enemy, kind of away from the other ones. And I think sort of like we can be faithful to all the other things and keep them and maybe fudge a little bit on this and we're okay. But the love command of our enemy is not simply one command amongst a list of commands that Jesus makes. There's a way in which this is the central command that this is at the heart, and it is especially at the heart of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, love of one's enemy. The love, the command to love our enemy sums up the unique moral character of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a summary in many ways, and it's the one thing that really distinguishes the kingdom of God from the kingdoms, all the other kingdoms of this world, even when they look very much like the kingdom of God. And that's because enemy love is an expression of a supernatural love that comes from outside of this world. It is not a natural love. It is a supernatural love. And the kingdom of God is built entirely on enemy love. That's where it starts. It starts on love of enemy, and it starts with us, and it starts with you and me as enemies of God that God has turned into friends and into family. And he calls us to do the same thing, to love our enemies. Now, when it comes to human loves, there is no higher love in this world than loving your enemy. There's no higher love. This might sound surprising to you. We think, well, perhaps the love between a husband and a wife or a father and a, a, a child or a mother and a child. Or we can think of all, of the, all kinds of loves that we would think of as more pure, but in fact, there's no higher love in this world than to love your enemy. And, because, and, and the reason is this, is because when we love our enemy, we're loving like God. <laughs> we're loving like God. We're loving like the way that God loves us. So enemy love is like the summit of all human loves. But as the summit, it is very difficult to do. Um, loving one's enemy is like, it's like climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> it's the Everest of loving. Uh, to climb Mount Everest, or to love one's enemy, is a dangerous and perilous journey. Nothing in your life, morally speaking, will be more difficult for you to do. Hands down. 
than for you to love your enemy. Nothing. Nothing hurts more. Nothing is more difficult. And yet, love of enemy defines the moral center of the kingdom of God. Love of enemy defines the moral center of the kingdom of God. Okay. The objections to Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies are legion. I'm sure in your mind right now, there's just, you've got this catalog of, of just like ready to download. <laughs> we struggle a lot with this teaching. Um, both inside the church and outside the church. First of all, it seems very impractical and unworkable, right? If we are supposed to treat our enemies, turn cheek, when somebody takes something, we offer the other things we have. I mean, this seems a very unpractical way to live, right? It seems like an invitation to invite more abuse <laughs> from people who want to disadvantage us. Uh, it seems... Uh, like Jesus is asking us to live without any boundaries, that people can come in and ask anything of us and take anything from us without us being able to say no, right? It seems like, right, to do this, to really practice it is to be kind of like a doormat for people to walk all over, right? So this is one of the big objections we have to Jesus' teaching here. The other one is even more, uh, more uh, significant which is, it's not simply that this is impractical and unworkable, but it's actually immoral. <laughs> that what Jesus tells us to do here is, is immoral. Um, are the oppressed supposed to keep turning the other cheek to their oppressor? Does this not, again, just, you know, perpetuate the status quo of injustice and abuse? Are the poor supposed to keep handing over the little that they have to robbers and thieves and the rich? Is that, is that what Jesus is suggesting here? Um, is Jesus, how is this not a, a way of empowering abusers and tyrants, right? How can you tell the victim to turn the other cheek to her abuser? Again, the, these are the two prime, these are the, 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 the many objections, right? Now, I could spend the rest of this sermon trying to qualify and explain and nuance all these commands. Um, to make them seem uh, more reasonable, but I don't want to do that. I will make one qualification in defense of Jesus' teachings here, and that is the person of Jesus himself. Jesus perfectly embodies the principle of loving his enemies. Jesus uh, was perfectly obedient to his own command of what he says to us here. And so when we think about, and we have all the objections raised in our mind uh, towards the, the kind of impracticality or even the immorality of his teachings here, um, before we reach those conclusions, we need to look at Jesus' life and ask this question. Was Jesus the world's doormat? Was he the world's doormat? Did Jesus lack personal boundaries? Was Jesus passive in the face of evil? Was Jesus perpetuating the status quo of evil and injustice in the world? Did Jesus enable and empower abusers? Now, we all know, absolutely not. Nothing could be further than the truth, right? Nothing could be further than the truth. No man in all of history did more to resist evil and change the world than this man. 
and yet he suffered greatly. <laughs> he suffered greatly at the hands of his enemies. But he refused to resist evil with evil. He refused to respond to hate with hate. Now, I think that if we're really honest with ourselves, um, the most troubling thing about Jesus' teaching here is that in our heart of hearts, we don't want to have to love our enemies. We don't want to have to love our enemies. We want to be able to hold on to our hatred. We, we want to, to steep in the bitterness of the wrongs that were done to us. We want to rep find repose in our moral superiority as victims, right? Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, argues that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, at a very deep level, is addressing what Willard def calls the Pharisee fallacy. And I think this applies equally to the Sermon on the Plain. The Pharisees, you'll remember, were the, the most well-known legalists of the ancient world in, in Israel. Um, they were obsessed with complete, um, exacting obedience to the law, to the letter of the law. And they uh, understood righteousness almost exclusively in terms of law-keeping, right? So Jesus comes along, and he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's assumed in this sermon as well, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> now, you can imagine hearing this as just an average layperson. What are you talking about? Like, these guys are religious professionals that devote themselves. How can I, as an ordinary person, ever achieve the level of righteousness that these Pharisees have in their own lives? But what Jesus meant by righteousness, exceeding that of the Pharisees, was not that we become better law keepers, right? But actually that our hearts, that we would have better hearts, that we would have hearts that were formed and that were actually in line with the true purpose and intent of the law. And that's what, that's what Willard means by the, the, the Pharisee fallacy, because that fallacy is a way of relating to the world that takes as its primary aim law-keeping, just I'm keeping the law, rather than becoming the kinds of person with hearts that are conformed to what the law intends. See, we often think of righteousness as e equaling keeping the laws rather than um, as being the right kind of person and having the right kind of heart. And that's what Jesus is about right here, right? So when we come back to this, Jesus' teachings on the law are always driving at the questions of the heart, Always, he's not looking to overturn the law, but to fulfill the law. But the only way the law is really fulfilled is when we have hearts that reflect what it points us towards. And so the heart reflects our true character. And this is really important when it comes to loving our enemies and these passages in particular, because when we come to these teachings, we immediately ask ourselves, okay, realistically speaking, how much of this do I have to actually keep, Right? I mean, we're always, we're, 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 we become legalists immediately. And we have all these different examples and things in our minds of counter, of like, here, well, in this situation, we shouldn't have to do this or that, right? There, there should be, an, an, I mean, you're not saying I can never defend myself, right? There should be an opportunity when I can strike back, right? 
Now, the seeming strictness here and the radical nature of Jesus' teaching on enemy love, I think, has the, the purpose of trying to corner our hearts. I, okay, I said I didn't want to use a lot of dog puppy illustrations, but we do have this puppy, and sometimes this puppy <laughs> is very hard to get in her crate. And, and um, you know, in the house, and she'll run circles around the table going this, try, and so you have to corner the dog to, to pick her up. And that's kind of like the human heart, right? Like, we, we're, we're like, we can run, we're running circles all through here, and what Jesus is doing here is he's just trying to cut off all the legal loopholes he, to our heart, of our hearts trying to wiggle our way off of actually the call to love our enemies. Now, Jesus wants us to wrestle with our own hearts when it comes to our enemies. That's the point of these teachings. But what he means by loving our enemies, and here's, let's talk about what that actually means. What he means by loving our enemies doesn't have to do with us developing fond affections and warm feelings towards them. The expression of loving our enemies is not in how we feel towards them, but rather in right actions. That's what Jesus is calling us to, right actions. And really, the whole, the whole, the whole of Jesus' teaching on enemy love is really encapsulated by this, this repeated phrase that's using, which is, love your enemies, do good to them. Do good to them. This is repeated. And the focus here is on actions, not on feelings. Because again, if you think about feelings in relationships to our enemies or those who have hurt us or harmed us, our emotions are all over the place, right? From fear to anxiety to anger to rage to bitterness. Like, our emotions are all over the place. But Jesus here presumes the possibility that even when you have all these really complex emotions, even emotions that, that say and scream to you, do the exact opposite, it is still possible to do good to your enemies. Now, some of you might object here. Well, this sounds really hypocritical, right? Well, you're saying that I should uh, live, you know, have hearts that, that correspond to the reality of righteousness. What you're telling me here is I need to, to do good even when I don't feel like doing good, even when my heart points the opposite direction. Now, this is hypocrisy if you have a modern understanding of the heart, right? To perform an act that does not correspond to the heart seems hypocritical to us. But this is only, again, if you think about the heart in the way that modern culture does. And here is, I think, a major difference between our understanding of the heart and Jesus' understanding of the heart. And this is a very, very important point that applies beyond simply just loving one's enemy, but to the whole of the Christian life. See, when we talk about expressing our heart, Heart is, is a response to feelings or emotion, right? When we think about, we show our heart, we think, well, I'm showing what I feel or what I, what I experience emotionally. But when Jesus talks about the heart, he's not talking about how we feel. For Jesus, the heart doesn't score, correspond to uh, emotions. It corresponds to actions and deeds. Because again, if you think about it, our emotions are all over the place, <laughs> I mean, your, your emotions can range from joy to fear to anxiety in the course of one hour. How you feel towards a person can, can change, go up and down and swing. The heart is not reliable. The way you know a person, you know their heart, is through what they do. <laughs> it is through their actions. 
So you, again, in the modern world, we think of um, if you want to know a person's heart, you listen to what they tell you about how they feel. But Jesus said, if you want to know a person's heart, look at what they do. Look at how they act. Because from the heart flows all kinds of actions and deeds. That's who you really are. You, who, what, who your heart is is what you do. And so I think the importance here is that Jesus isn't saying that emotions and feelings are unimportant. But what he is saying is this, is that in the modern way of thinking about the heart, we think we, that right action flows from right emotion, right? Right action flows from right emotion. In other words, if I don't feel it, I can't do it. That's how a lot of us approach life. I do what I feel, right? And so if my emotions say X, then I can't do Y, right? But Jesus reverses. He says, no, it's the other way around. Right action. And from right action flows right emotion. Eventually. Not always. But, but again, you think about your life as like a train. See, again, we tend to think of our, our, our lives as like a train in which emotion is, is the engine that's driving the train. But it's not. Action is the engine. And emotion is the caboose. Emotion follows along. It can't be the, the thing that leads, right? So this is very important. And I think the point is this. Here's the point I want you to take away. And this has broad applications. You, you don't have to feel like doing the right thing in order to do the right thing. Amen? Amen. You don't have to feel like doing the right thing in order to do the right thing. You'll never feel like loving your enemy. <laughs> And I think we get stuck precisely at this point because we think that loving my enemy means I have to like them or I have to feel a certain emotion to them. And Jesus says, no, you can love your enemy even though you don't feel like it. So what does this enemy love actually look like in our lives? And I just, um, I want to give you four principles of enemy love. And here, you know, I, I, I didn't really, I don't really have time to talk about who is our enemy and all the different kinds of enemies, but this has application beyond simply real enemies, people who have really hurt you. I, I just want you to imagine in your own life, who is that person I'm really struggling with? And it might be your spouse. It might be a kid. It might be a neighbor, somebody in church. Who's the person that you're in conflict with? Or who's the person that you just, at work or at church, you just don't get and you struggle with? You struggle to like, right? That's, that's who Jesus has in mind here in many ways. And so uh, I want to give you four, four principles, and there's a lot more here that we could spend, but we only have time for four. And the first one is this. The first principle of loving our enemy is to desire their well-being. It is to desire their well-being rather than their misery and destruction. Jesus says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This is, I think, where enemy love has to begin. It has to begin with this question, which is, what do I wish for my enemy? What do I hope for their future? See, a lot of times when people really hurt us, when we have real enemies, um, what we want, we desire is their destruction. We want them to suffer like we suffered, right? And what Jesus says is, is no. You know, desire and wish for their well-being and flourishing. But here, this is key. He's not saying, you know, oh, uh, we wish and, and desire for their well-being flourishing as wrongdoers. Not at all, right? What we desire and wish for their flourishing is actually that they repent, they make amends, they do the right thing, because 
In the grand scheme of things, nobody ever flourishes and finds well-being when they don't confront the wrongs they've done to others and that they continue to do, right? And so the desire to, that your enemy flourishes is not that they flourish as an enemy, <laughs> but they flourish as somebody who's been transformed, that's repented, right? And it begins in prayer, right? See, again, I, you know, the way that this desire kind of takes seed in our hearts is we pray for them. That's the action, right? So you might not desire or feel like you want your enemy to flourish, but you can pray it, right? You can say, Lord, I don't understand, but Lord, I, I pray, pray for their repentance, pray for their understanding. This is precisely what Jesus did on the cross, as he's hanging and his tormentors are mocking him, and Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. This is where it starts. It starts in prayer as we bring our pain to the Lord and we ask him for help. We ask him to help us deal with our enemies, but also to bless our enemies, which is really to transform them. And see, it's in prayer that not only that God changes our enemies' hearts, but he changes ours too as we do with them. So that's the first principle, desiring the well-being of my enemy. The second one, and this is the most hard, this is the hardest one, I think, of all. The second principle of loving our enemy is to remain relationally open to them rather than simply cutting them off. Jesus says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek after, um, offer the other. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So again, this is, I think, the most difficult and um, dangerous of what Jesus says here. Because when someone hurts us, you think about it, when someone hurts you, even at, in, in your marriage, right, your spouse does something that's really hurtful, your instinct, what is it? To strike back, to hurt them back. It's just natural. Like, when people hurt us, we want to strike back. We want to punish them for hurting us, right? And Jesus says, don't do that. But he doesn't say just don't do that, don't retaliate. He says, actually, you have to stay relationally open, right? That's, the, that's kind of the principle here of the tunic, of turning the other cheek. It's not to be like, oh, abuse me more. But there's, a, there's, a, there's this principle of not just like cutting a person off. Because that's our tendency in, is just to cut people off. You're like, they've hurt us, um, they've offended us, and they're dead to us, right? We exile them. And Jesus here, again, Jesus is not talking about, you know, abusive relationships. He's not saying to the, the wife who is abused by her husband, keep turning the other cheek. That's not the context here. But what Jesus is saying here is important, is that there, there's a way that, that we remain, in a sense, relationally open. We don't just cut people off. And that can involve all kinds of boundaries. Boundaries are good. But uh, here I'll distinguish between boundaries, which are healthy and necessary for our flourishing and well-being and, and barriers or walls. Because what we often do is we don't have boundaries, we actually have walls. And walls are built on hate, and they're built on bitterness, and they're only sustained when you continue hating, <laughs> and you continue to be bitter. And, and that's, it consumes the heart, that's the thing. When you don't for, love your enemy, as Jesus is saying, like even though you might have no contact whatsoever with your enemy, your enemy still lives in the center of your heart. Because it takes so much energy emotionally to continue to hate. And really, you know, hate is just, bitterness is a form of hate, but it's just sort of the after effects. And so like when we hold on to bitterness, we're holding on to hate, and it just, it, it emotionally consumes us, right? 
And we might have no contact whatsoever, but we go back again and replay the injuries of others of our enemy. And Jesus, I mean, he, he just says something here that's so hard for us, but it's so important, is, is, to, is to be open. Open to other person's transformation and hopeful about how they change. And again, I'm not saying here, you know, you, you have to keep engaging in an abusive relationship. So uh, we need to um, desire enemies flourishing and pray for that, and we need to remain relationally open with not cutting people off. But, but third, and this follows us, the third principle is, so we have to refuse to render final judgment on our enemies. Uh, Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Our tendency when people hurt and harm us is to reduce them to the wrongs they have done to us. It is to see them exclusively through the lens of what they have done, to where we say, this is who you are. This is essential to your character, and you cannot change. This is what it means to render judgment on a, a person. Well, that's just who they are. That's who they are, right? And again, what we do is we reduce their humanity. We make them all about this one thing they've done to us or way of relating to us, and we offer no possibility that they could be changed, that there's more to the, to the story of who they are. Jesus here isn't saying that we don't make judgments or moral evaluations about how people behave or call out bad behavior. That's not what he's talking about at all. But there's a big difference between uh, identifying and calling out inappropriate behavior and rendering final judgment. Only God is judge. Only God knows the heart fully. Only God knows all. And only he can render final judgment, not us. And I think that Jesus sort of squeezes in here, I think, another really important principle that flows from this, which is um, the measure that we use to relate to other people will be the measure that is used for them to relate back to us. And to put it another way is that people will mirror you. Your moral way of relating to them, they will mirror back to you, ordinarily speaking. So if you are a judgmental person, you're a person who's quick to make an assessment about another person, um, to size them up, you will often probably feel like people do that to you. If you're the kind of person that, that does not forgive, <laughs> just refuse to forgive, um, you will probably experience that people are, don't want to forgive you either. If you're the kind of person that is, is not very quick to to offer mercy or be compassionate how you relate to others, you will experience that in your own life. You're like, people are very unmerciful and uncompassionate to me. See, the reality is this. It was like, Jesus is making a very profound point about how we interact as human beings. It's like, the measure you use will be reflected back to you. Because that's human nature. That's natural instinct, right? But if you're generous, if you're merciful, if you're compassionate, if you, if, if you relate that way to you ordinarily... That's how people will treat you. And this, I think, leads us to the final point of loving our enemy. And that is sensitivity to our own faults. Sensitivity to our own faults. Um, awareness that we, too, can be an enemy to others. Right? See, um, 
we need to be aware of our own fallibility, our own ways that we do others wrong. So Jesus says, why do you see that speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? <laughs> I mean, it's just a, you know, it's this vivid picture. Like, you got a little speck here, but there's this, like, log sticking out, right? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself have that log in your own eye? You hypocrite. See, one of the great dangers of having enemies and having legitimately been grievously wronged or harmed by other people is that it's easy to become self-righteous. See, when you become a true victim, right, (laughs) or you've been victimized, if you will, there's a way in which you are tempted to your own moral superiority over against the one who has done you wrong. And this is a place of great, great danger. It is, it is a place of incredible danger because we become blinded to the ways in which we ourselves can do wrong to others or even have done wrong to others. <clears throat> we often think that, you know, if I've been really wronged, it's incapable for me to do the same, do that to another. And that is not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. Some of the people who are the most victimized in the world become some of the greatest oppressors and perpetrators of violence themselves. Miroslav Wolf, in his book, Exclusion Embrace, captures, I think, the profound tension here. When he talks about enemy love and forgiveness, he says this. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And that is our tendency when it comes to dealing with our enemies, is we deny them their humanity, we make them into moral monsters, and we exclude them from the human race, and what we do for ourselves is we elevate ourselves and make ourselves righteous and pure and innocent, and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And Jesus says, no, this, is, this will not work. <laughs> Friends, nothing sums up the moral character of the kingdom of God like loving our enemies. However, loving our enemies, it is not natural. There is nothing natural about it. It goes against every instinct of the human heart which is why it requires a supernatural intervention. And the supernatural intervention is this. God has forgiven me. I have become a recipient of divine forgiveness. I was once an enemy of God, and he has made me a friend. I was one who was in rebellion, and he has brought me into his family. And that's the presupposition here, right? This is why the nations cannot obey this command, because they do not have the forgiveness Divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is not something you can write into a constitution (laughs) or a community or culture of people. It is a supernatural reality that only the church and its life together can live out and embody. Friends, the more that you grapple with loving your enemy, the more it drives you to the true depths of God's grace and mercy. It should. And when we see that the nature of forgiveness in our life, and we understand the dynamics, what we realize is that the ultimate burden of loving our enemies actually doesn't fall on us. It fell on Jesus. (laughs) That at the end of the day, he bears the ultimate burden of loving even our enemies. 
I mean, our enemies can hurt us, to be sure, can harm us, but they cannot destroy us. <laughs> like they destroyed Jesus. The burden falls on him. And I think there's the, the Jesus' whole presumption here is this, is that if you are in me, they can't hurt you, ultimately. They cannot hurt you. Because I, I face every enemy, and I even was crucified, died, and I went to hell, and yet I triumphed. Your enemies cannot win. They cannot ultimately hurt you because you are more than a conqueror in me. Amen. Father, um, may we, uh, through learning to love our enemies, learn how much you loved us. By learning to show grace and mercy, may we uh, understand the true depths of the grace and mercy and what it cost you. Lord, every, I'm sure that all who are listening this morning have probably one or two people or relationships in their mind that they're thinking about in the light of um, this sermon. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work um, grace and forgiveness and the deep character that Jesus wants us to have when it comes to loving, loving our enemies, loving those who have hurt us. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that we would come away with just a sense that no matter how much we've been hurt or people hurt us, Lord, that you love us and that nobody, nobody can awfully hurt us and harm us and take us from your love. We pray all this in the name of Christ.